You are listening to Haftarah, the Shir series where we explore the connections between the Parsha Shavua and its corresponding Haftarah. However, here at the database with Rabbi Shua Eisenberg, this Shabbos is going to be the first day of Sukkot at the moment of this recording, which means that we have to look at the Haftarahs for Sukkot, which will include, of course, the Haftarah for the first day of Sukkot, the Haftarah for the second day of Sukkot in Golis, right in the diaspora outside Eretz Yisrael, where there is a second day of Yom Tov. And of course, although at the moment of this recording, this year, there will not be a Shabbos Cholomoed Sukkot. There will, perhaps, in the future, be a Shabbos Cholomoed Sukkot, and that has its own special Haftar, which we will hopefully give attention to, perhaps, during Cholomoed. And then, after that, of course, we have the second half of Yom Tov, which will include Shemini Atzeret and Simchas Torah, which, in Eretz Yisrael, is one day, but in Chutz, Laaretz, and Golis, they are two separate days with two separate haftaras of their own. So that means that for this Sukkot season, we will have five haftaras to not only conclude the Sukkot season, but to actually conclude the entire series of haftarah. We will have covered every single haftarah that you can think of. I don't think there are any that we left out. But of course, the final parsha in the Torah, the Zosabracha, is read on Simchas Torah, which means that the Haftarah for that will be the final one in the series. Haba Alinu Latova. So let us now take a look at the special Haftarah, at least for the first day of Sukkot, which comes to us from Sefer Zachariah, Herak Yedalad. That is the final chapter of Zachariah, and it is Sukkim Aleph through Chaf Aleph. So that is 14, 1 to 21. And we find a very interesting prophecy about the times of Gog Umagog, perhaps otherwise in less Jewish circles. They may be referred to as Armageddon, but it is the war to end wars, the war of Gog Umagog. And I believe the simple understanding is that Gog is the name of a king and Magog is the name of his country. But what we have to understand is the relevance of Gog Umagog to Sukkot. All we do see is explicitly referenced in the Haftarah is going to be the time where the Navi tells us that all of the people of the world are going to be engaged in the mitzvah of sukkah, which is very, very strange because, of course, we know that sukkah was a mitzvah that was commanded to Klal Yisrael in the Torah. It's in order for us to remember for generations to come that Hashem sat us in Sukkot, whether they are a reference to booths that we sat in when we left Egypt, or of course the Anane HaKavod, the clouds of glory. And this mitzvah was a mitzvah for us. However, the Navi seems to say that at the culmination of this war to end wars, everyone's going to be sitting in Sukkot. So the question is, what exactly is that all about? So... Before we answer that question, I want to dedicate this shir, Luli Nishmas Imim Rossi Chayrachal Bas David Zvi Harini Kvars Meshkava Her Neshama Should Have an Aliyah. Now, if one is following along in the Art Scroll Machzer, so the Machzer gives a little bit of background and talks about the different opinions suggested as to the relevance between Gogu Magog and the holiday of Sukkot is that again which we mentioned that the Navi tells us in this Haftarah that the survivors of the War of Gog and Magog, the survivors of those nations, so they are going to join the Bnei Israel every year in observing the mitzvah in the Chag of Sukkot. Um, there, the art scroll also quotes 
the Nemuke Yosef to Megillah, suggesting a, suggest, uh, a suggestion um, of a tradition in the name of Rav Haigon that the victory of Gogomagog is in fact going to take place in Tishrei. Now, two points that I want to focus on that um, one emerges from the commentary suggested in the art scroll, but you could find um, you could find it in the writings of Rav Shamshin Rav Hirsch, and one is an idea that requires us to look outside of the Haftarah and into some territory that we don't usually look at during this particular shear slot, and that is a very famous Gemara that is based in this Haftarah. So, to start off, um, well, the art scroll cites Rav Hirsch. And Rav Hirsch elaborates on the deeper significance of the word Gog as it relates to Sukkot, because Gog is the spell that has the, it contains the letters of the word Gog, which means a roof. And of course, the most prominent feature of the Sukkah is the Schach, the very flimsy foliage, the grassy, branchy, um, leafy um, covering that we put over our heads in the Sukkah. Um, it's what makes the Sukkah what it is. The Sukkah is named after the Schach, as Rashi tells us in the Sukkah several times on that first daf, first Amud. Uh, but the, the point is that there is a marked difference between Gog and Schach, right? That is because the the Gog represents the protection of the physical world that a person might think he has in his own in his own um, structure. He might think that due to his his firm and solid roof that he is therefore dominant. And yet we sit under the Schach, we sit under the Sukkah, and this is reminiscent of that Pasuk in Tehillim Chaf, right? We call in the name of our God, we call in the name of Hashem, whereas others are relying on the horses and they're relying on their chariots and they're relying on all their physical things. Right? right? It's my, 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 my strength and my might and my valor that has gotten me everything that I need. And people um, tend to sometimes feel that certain sense of comfort, perhaps a false sense of security. I say false sense of security because we know that Hashem is the one that dominates the world and the natural world as well. And so the point is that we sometimes, while we, uh, while we tend to rely on those things, we have a reality check on Sukkot where we go out into the Sukkot and realize that Hashem is the source of our protection. And therefore, this is the main difference between us and the nations of the world. We rely on the Schach, and Rav Hirsch says, the others, they rely on the Gog. In other words, we rely on Hashem. We don't rely on the firm roof. And others, they rely on what they believe to be their, their sense of security. They, 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 they believe in the roof over their head. And Rav Hirsch explains similarly the name Magog, and this we find um, um, the Rav Hirsch and a, a, a contemporary grammarian, the Malbim, who both explain that whenever you have the mem in front of a word, mem represents the place of or the source of. Um, the, uh, even Art Scroll here quotes the, um, the, the most basic example, the difference between the word or and ma'or. Or as a light, ma'or is a luminary, something that projects a light. So, um, says of Hirsch, Gog represents the philosophy of relying on the roof, relying on your own physical and perhaps physiological and natural protection, whereas 
the, uh, um, the, the word magog, uh, the source of that philosophy. So explains of Hirsch, magog is the attempt to spread that philosophy to the world, that it is physical prowess that'll make you successful, that'll make you uh, secure and protected. And this is something that we do not believe in. And on Sukkot, this is one of the main lessons that we are reliant upon a Kaddish Baruch Hu, a very beautiful idea and a, a, just a very fair connection between the concepts of Gogu Magog and, and Sukkot. And apparently the War to End Wars is going to be all about this theme. At the end of the day, we rely on Hashem and that's all we need. But I want to bring our attention to that question that we alluded to earlier. What exactly does it mean that the nations are going to um, somehow try to join us in the midst of Sukkah? So this, uh, this Haftar is really the basis for a very fascinating and sort of strange Gemara, an Agatha that we find in the beginning of the Gemara in Avodah Zarah. The Gemara in Avodah Zarah, on Daf Gimel, um, records this lengthy Agatic account from the future when the nations of the world are going to attempt to somehow collect eternal reward despite a lack of merit earned during their time in this world. After the nations had failed to defend their appeal for any reward, considering that they did not only um, cease to fulfill Hashem's Torah, but they didn't even uphold the, the basic seven mitzvahs b'nei Noach, the, the Noahide laws. So there the Gemara is going to suggest the, well, the, the somehow that, the, that these nations of the world are going to try to get a second chance at keeping the Torah. right? So Hashem is going to say, okay, whoever, whoever fulfilled the Torah, come and get the reward. The nations are going to start, you know, they're going to bombard the, the, the doorway and they're going to try to get in and see if they can get any reward. Hashem is going to be like, what are you guys doing here? What, what, what shaykhs, what connection do you have to reward for fulfilling the Torah? They're going to say, oh, well, we sort of um, created forums and avenues and and the technology and a lot of these different things that will allow the Jewish people to keep the Torah. That's what we did, and uh, therefore we should get some reward. And Hashem, he's gonna he's gonna reject them and say, "You guys are fools. You you know you did all of that for yourselves, and in fact you attempted to persecute the Jews. So well, why do you think that you deserve anything?" So not only that, says Hashem, but again. Um, you, you didn't even keep the basic mitzvahs that you were already supposed to be keeping. So, nonetheless, Hashem says, "You know, but I'm, you know, Hashem says I'm patient. I'm not. I'm not here to weasel you guys." So, upon the people's request for another chance, the Gemara says that Hashem will eventually grace the nations of the world with one last chance to do a mitzvah in the form of what the Gemara refers to as a mitzvah kala, a simple mitzvah, and that mitzvah, of course, is none other than that of sukkah. Now, in response to this offer, the nations um, would dwell in Sukkos. It's interesting. The Gemara says that they will all get upon their roofs. They will go upon the Gag, and they're going to place the Sukkah on top of the roof. Perhaps an allusion to what we've mentioned earlier, right? The Gogu Magog. They're going to place their Sukkah above the Gag, maybe for one day. For one, they're going to have one attempt to put the protection of Hashem on top of their roofs and to say, you know what, there's something that's more powerful than the roof, it is the schach. It is the one that protects Klal Yisrael. An interesting thought. But anyway, they're going to go up onto their roofs. They're going to build their sukkahs. And the Gemara tells us that when they do, the nations, they will sit in their sukkahs until Hashem releases the burning hot sun and He causes the people to exit the sukkahs. And on the way out, they kick their sukkahs for good measure.
And in response, the Gemara relates that Hashem will merely laugh, jeering as it were, and it quotes uh, Pasuk for support. Now, this is the story of the Gemara. This is the story that the Gemara brings, and it is rooted in our story in the Haftarah that says, in this uh, in this lyrical prophecy from Zechariah talking about the war of the future of Gog and Magog, that at the end of it, they're all going to join us in doing the mitzvah of Sukkah. So perhaps there are several questions you might have anticipated just about this Gemara. Or for example, why would Hashem pull a fast one against his creatures using the sun to chase away the people from this mitzvah? Right, the Gemara's simple defense was that the shining of the sun was not necessarily a strict measure reserved for the nations. So the Gemara says, okay, so it was hot on Sukkot. Doesn't that happen naturally? Right, in, in Tkufas Tammuz, um, the, the heat of Tammuz, which of course starts in the summer, sometimes it extends into Sukkot. And depending on the climate, depending on where you are, uh, sometimes it's hot on Sukkot. So if it's a natural occurrence, maybe it's something that is common enough. But still, I think a more fundamental question you can ask is which, which the Gemara challenges after that, how could Hashem hold the nations responsible for exiting the Sukkot if a basic rule of Sukkah we know is that mitzta'ar pater min Sukkah, right? The, those who are pained are pater, they are exempt from the mitzvah of Sukkah. Right? The Gemara's counter to this question is quite simple and compelling. Of course, the people were exempt from the mitzvah, but no one told them to kick the Sukkah on the way out. They did that on their own. So that is why they are ultimately rejected from any reward in the world to come. This is what the Gemara already addresses. But I have some other questions that the Gemara does not address. For example, why exactly does Hashem choose the mitzvah of sukkah? Some explain that because the sukkah is referred to as the mitzvah kala, the light mitzvah, the simple mitzvah, so that is why it was chosen. But... Hashem could have selected any one of these 613 mitzvahs. The choice of sukkah, I think, needs some explanation. Why would Hashem choose sukkah as the last chance mitzvah for the nations of the world? Just because it was Tishrei? Is it just in the timing? Question number two is why does Hashem create circumstances that would exempt the nations of the world from the mitzvah of sukkah? Why would Hashem choose a mitzvah of sukkah that can be naturally circumvented by technical exemptions such as being mitzvah? And granted, the nations of the world are going to seal their own fate by kicking the sukkah. So that was their own mistake, or that will be their own mistake. But what is the point of situating the nations in a condition that would disable them from fulfilling this last chance mitzvah? It's like, okay, I'm giving you one last chance mitzvah that you can keep the Torah um, in, in, in the form of one mitzvah. It's going to be the mitzvah that I'm going to create the circumstance that you're not going to have to do it. Like, what's that all about? But the Gemara already makes the argument that Hashem doesn't con his creations. He's not trying to weasel them. So that's the case. What, what do you have in mind by putting them in a situation where they're going to get a mitzvah that they can't do or that they just won't do? So in terms of why the mitzvah of sukkah was chosen, a good place to look for answers to agadic questions would be the Maharsha. And the Maharsha, he addresses that first question of why Hashem chose sukkah by explaining that Hashem selected this mitzvah sukkah to allude to the fact that indeed the nations of the world had missed the point 
of life in this world, and they really had missed out on the opportunity. The temporary dwelling that is the sukkah represents the transient world in Olam Hazeh, and whose sole purpose is to enable us, the inhabitants of that world, to earn eternal reward in the permanent and eternal world of the world to come, Olam Haba. Right, the nation's request for a second chance only reveals that they didn't take advantage of Olam Hazeh while they had it. Now, if this is true, one might suggest that God doesn't intend for the people to fulfill the mitzvah of sukkah and really receive any word at all. And that this last chance was really just to teach them a lesson. Is that true? Perhaps we should not go that far because, after all, the Gemara, again, tells us that Hashem does not con his creations. He's not trying to catch us. He's not trying to catch us, you know, in failure. So if he wanted to teach the people a lesson, it would have to be to some productive end. Meaning, if he was giving them a last chance mitzvah, it must be that there was really some kind of a last chance here. So the question is, what was that last chance? If Hashem chooses Sukkah to demonstrate his kindness to the nations, that he would go above and beyond the letter of the law, giving them one second chance at the mitzvah. So the question is, why would Hashem effectively exempt the people from the mitzvah? If he was going to exempt them anyway, what was the point of this last chance? What was it supposed to prove? Was it all really some kind of scheme after all? So in order to understand the nature of the Umo Sa'olam, the nations of the world, their second chance at keeping the Torah, we have to explain Hashem's allowance of this second chance. Why, in fact, does Hashem even allow another chance to the people? Because after all, the Gemara itself is going to argue on the basis of Scripture that the Pasuk says, Hayom la'asosam, today in this world alone one can earn reward for doing the mitzvah, velo lamachar, not tomorrow, in the world to come. So, granted, Hashem is merciful and kind, and He does give them a second chance, but how could uh, but how could Hashem sort of justify His own blatant violation of what it says in the Torah? Right, the Gemara brings this drasha. It says, how can you try to get reward today for what you should have done yesterday? Right? Um, uh, today is the morrow of yesterday. Today is, the, uh, today is the tomorrow of yesterday. And if that's true, they should have done the mitzvah yesterday in Olam Hazed. They didn't do it in Olam Hazed. So how come in Olam Haba, in, in, in the times of the future, they're going to try to get the mitzvah again? Hashem says, oh, you know, well, I'll, I'll give you a second chance anyway. Like, where, 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 where is he getting a second chance from? Where, where did Hashem pull that out of? You know, did, he, did he have scriptural support for doing that? Maybe, is there rule Hashem is allowed to go against the Torah? However, what if we could argue that maybe the second chance was never really intended as a chance to derive reward for the performance of the mitzvah? So if it wasn't that, then what was this a second chance for? So if we meditate on what it is that the Gemara relates, we'll seal the eternal fate of the nations. I think we'll be on our way. Because remember that the Gemara wholly defends the Goyim's departure from their sukkos. The Gemara says, after all, there was unbearable heat. That's a case of mitzdair, mitzdair is pater minasukkah. This is not the problem that we have with what the nations of the world will do. We are okay with them walking out of the sukkah. The reason that they are denied any credit at all is that they are going to kick the sukkahs on the way out. And I think that is the um, critical and most telling moment of this agarata. Because right, earlier the Gemara reported that the nations would defend their self-professed rights to get potential merit on the basis that, unlike the Bnei Israel, 
they were not present at Har Sinai and subject to Hashem's coercion of of Kafalei um, Harkigigas, right? The Gemara elsewhere, Avodah tells us that Hashem held Har Sinai over the people and said, "Well, you're going to keep the Torah, and if you do, great. Otherwise, you know, we'll we'll drop the mountain over here. You'll this is will be this will be your burial place, right? The Hashem." How, whatever it means that Hashem coerced, he compelled the Bnei Yisrael to keep his Torah. The nations were never subject to that. And they're going to argue further that given the opportunity, they would jump at that opportunity to receive the Torah anew. However, as we pointed out, for Hashem to simply concede and afford them the second chance would be a violation of the Torah itself, which apparently states that rewards for mitzvahs cannot be earned after the fact in the next world, only in this world. Perhaps that is why, I want to argue, Hashem chose the mitzvah of sukkah, and this is why Hashem situated them so that they would be putter from sukkah. Right? Perhaps there is technically no way for the nations of the world to earn reward for the fulfillment of a mitzvah in the next world, but maybe they could possibly be rewarded for their genuine and earnest desire to fulfill the mitzvahs, even when external conditions would render them unable to do so. After all, that is the claim they make that they have a desire to accept the Torah and fulfill the mitzvahs. But how can that claim be tested if technically they can no longer observe the mitzvahs? So Hashem actually kills two birds with one stone by giving them the mitzvah of sukkah. Because what does he do? He gives them one mitzvah, and then he exempts them from the mitzvah. Meaning they can't do the mitzvah and get reward for doing the mitzvah. But maybe they can get reward for wanting to do the mitzvah. How can we test that? Give them a mitzvah, don't let them do it. Give them the mitzvah of sukkah, and then exempt them from the mitzvah of sukkah. Aha! So, Hashem enables the nations to display that most sincere remorse and yearning to fulfill the mitzvah, even though they practically could not. Because if they were truly pained, not just by the heat, but by the lost opportunity to fulfill a mitzvah, that would show and their claim would be supported. But of course, the nation's actual reaction to their exemption says it all. Right? They have no yearning for Hashem's mitzvahs themselves, because of course they kicked the mitzvah. All they really wanted was the reward for the mitzvah. And it looks like they're going to be getting neither. Right? They clearly don't care for the mitzvah. They kicked the mitzvah on the way out. But it finds me very beautiful is that the attitude that one displays for Hashem's mitzvahs is not just the basis for the indictment of the nations of the world, but it's actually the tell-all measure of what it means to be a Jew. This is the difference between being a Jew and being a non-Jew. At least having the attitude, the hashkafa, the outlook, the philosophy of a Jew and that of a non-Jew. And the proof lies with, actually, the very first Jew. Right, The first day of Sukkot, we actually have the Ushpizin, Right, we're really, on each day of Sukkot, we have something called the Ushbiz, and these are understood as the guests who join us in the Sukkah. And the first day of Sukkot corresponds to none other than Avraham Avinu, who was the first Jew. And we know that Avraham started off as an ordinary Noahide, or a Gentile, but unlike any other, he was the first to strive for more. Hashem set him apart from the Noahides of the world when he allowed Avraham to enter the bris milah which is the physical mark of a Jew, of course, and it's the spiritual beginning of the life of any Ben Yisrael. It's the difference between a Ben Yisrael and a Ben Noach. 
And it was immediately after the forging of that covenant, that bris of Jewishness, that Avraham's attitude for mitzvot became apparent to all. And the Torah relates that Avraham Venus sat at the entrance of his tent, where? Kechom hayom, in the heat of the day, in the scorching sun. Sounds familiar? And Chazal teaches us that Avraham Avinu, three days removed from his bris milah, was ill. So what did Hashem do? He removed the sun from its sheath in order to spare him from the burning, um, oh sorry, I should say the, not the burning, but the burden of hosting wayfarers. Right? Avraham was what we would call someone who was pater min He was exempt from the mitzvah of hachnasas arachem, of hospitality. We might have called him a mitzta'er, the ultimate mitzta'er. In fact, Rashi precisely refers to Avram as mitzta'er. He, Avram is pained. But not for the reason you might think. He's not pained because of the physical pain of his circumcision, nor from the discomfort of the scorching sun. But says Rashi, he was pained because there were no f- wayfarers for him to entertain in his home. He was pained because he would not be able to perform and fulfill a mitzvah. Right? If the sun wasn't emitting so much heat, right? the, the parallels and contrast to the nations of the world would be chilling. And they don't even end there. Right? The Gemara and Rosh Hashanah tells us that this revealing scene, which uh, featured Avram Avinu at the entrance of his scorching hot um, day at the tent, so when did that take place? The Gemara Nosh Hashanah says it took place in Sukkot. Interestingly, we know that there's another Medrash that Rashi quotes that it took place on Pesach. But fascinating enough to know that there's an opinion that Avraham sitting at the entrance of his tent, that whole story at the beginning of Parshas Vayera took place on other than Sukkot. Right, so Sukkot does not only offer us another mitzvah opportunity, but it offers us a precise measure for our attitude towards mitzvos, as is demonstrated by the Agadita and Avodah which is apparently the basis for our Haftara. Right, we know that it's quite common to have exemptions from the mitzvah of sukkah. Right, how we observe sukkahs in this way might actually remain in Hashem's hands. Right, sometimes we get to do the mitzvah, and sometimes Hashem puts us in a circumstance where we'll be exempt from the mitzvah. But how we relate to that exemption is going to be what reveals everything. Right? So the Mishnah likens a downpour of rain on Sukkot to a slave who pours a cup of water for his master only to get that cup spilled back in his face. Right? It's clear how we're supposed to feel when we are technically exempt from the mitzvah. Are we happy or relieved to receive that gesture of rejection? Although we have the opportunity to answer this question on Sukkot, we truly encounter this question daily. In this vein, perhaps instead of rejoicing at the exemption, for example, that we sometimes get from reciting the extended Tachnun, perhaps we can recognize the lost opportunity of extra communication with Hashem. Right? It's a legal truth that mitzta'er pater mena sukkah. The pained are exempt from sukkah. But if we aspire to be like Avram Avinu, with our Jewish hearts in the right place, then the reverse will be true. Not that Amitstar Patr Minasukkah, that the pained are exempt from the sukkah, but the exempt will be pained. Amitstar Patr, or maybe Hapatr Mitstar, the one whose Patr is going to feel bad. Right, like the nations of the world, every, every exemption is just another test. It's another chance to demonstrate our attitude towards Hashem's mitzvahs. And after the war of war, right, so we're going to see 
we, we are going to get to witness firsthand nations who will attempt to derive reward but will reveal their attitude towards the mitzvahs. And the, as, as, as demonstrated by the Gemara Nevodah attitude towards mitzvahs can apparently change the conversation of merit in the world to come. Because even in the face of exemption from mitzvahs, we actually have the potential to earn eternal reward by our, uh, by, by our sincere desire to do the mitzvah. Right? Our reactions to the opportunity to do a mitzvah and the lack of that opportunity to do the mitzvah will apparently say it all. So we should be zocha to have the right attitude, a sincere love and yearning for Hashem's mitzvahs, and Hashem should respond to the attitude in kind in the face of those who share the attitude of the nations of the world. And that should all happen with the coming of the result of that battle of Gogumagog, the coming of Mashiach Meher Bimenu. Now, of course, I wish everyone a wonderful sukkah, but stay tuned for the next Haftarah, that, oh, that of the second day of sukkah. And, of course, if you enjoy this year, know there's like it on the podcast, you want to partner with us with a sponsorship, or if you have questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, or you want to join the database podcast WhatsApp group where you can find links to every uploaded shear and links that I repost um, due to their relevance. And all you have to do is reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. That's the data than base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here at the database.